Hey everyone, it's Joel from the Methinks podcast. I want to preface this episode by letting you know that we recorded this the day before the Capitol protests. So Maggie, Tyler, and myself got together and had a really interesting conversation that touched on a lot of aspects having to do with politics, presidential character, and so on. You'll see. But it was interesting that the day of the protest, Tyler got in contact with me and said that a lot of what was happening and a lot of the commentary about the Capitol protests was really relevant, really, really relevant to the conversation we were having. So I just want to let you know that we uh, had this conversation before the events that transpired at the Capitol, but the conversation is very, very relevant to what happened. For a lot of people, what happened at the Capitol is going to have a serious bearing on the arguments that we discuss in this podcast, the arguments raised by theologians like Wayne Grudem and John Piper. So if you don't hear Maggie, Tyler, or myself talk about the Capitol protests in this episode and connect that with Christian voting ethics, just know that's because we were a day late. We recorded this the day before the protests. Nevertheless, for a lot of people, some of what we argue in this episode will seem like it receives extra support from the things that unfolded last week. So as your eyes are glued to your TV screens and to news outlets, we hope that this episode is enlightening and interesting and provocative. Thanks for joining us. See you on the other side. I think that historians looking back on this are going to very easily be able to trace the responsibility back to um, everyone involved coming out of Washington. And I think that Trump's attitude from the very beginning of his campaign, uh, which has really been a take no prisoners, um, like me or leave me kind of attitude, has just been mimicked because it was successful. Welcome to the Methinks Podcast. Um, our journey as Christians, graduate students, and body scholars regularly leads us to explore questions about ethics, sexuality, history, and faith. The Methinks Podcast is an invitation for you to join us in that journey, to thoughtfully engage and wrestle with these questions alongside us. Um, my name is Maggie. I am a graduate student in the field of history, specifically American evangelical history. My name is Joel. I'm a graduate student in the field of philosophy, and I specialize in epistemology and ethics. For today's episode, we are joined by our friend Tyler Nylin. Yes, Tyler joined us a few episodes ago to talk about justice conversations and race issues. So, Tyler, we are super excited to have you back. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. I'm excited to be back, and I am an associate pastor at Fountain of Life Church in Madison, Wisconsin. I also work at Nehemiah uh, Center for Urban Leadership Development, and uh, I was in I went to North Park Theological Seminary, got my MDiv there, and before that I was at Cedarville University. Uh, So yeah, really uh, enjoy these conversations. I feel like they fit right within uh, a lot of what my experience has been. So excited to be here, dude. So good to have you here. Yeah, we like it when we're 
diving into really controversial stuff to have a third person. That way we can just <laughs> like push everything to you. And if it goes really badly, we'll be like, well, you know, Tyler. It's Tyler. Exactly. Tyler's the one that really, uh, really did it. That's fine. I'll, I'll accept that. Precisely. I'm sure. Uh, uh, I'm sorry though. Um, me and Joel's bromance is probably going to come out a little bit more. It's, come on. Absolutely. I mean, I've been dealing with it for what a year now, I think. Pretty oh much. yeah, we're yeah. we're verging on the one year mark. Yeah, are yeah. you guys going to do anything for your bromance anniversary? Honestly, yeah. we should. That's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. We should. We should. It, let's go to a camp together, Joel. <laughs> sit around a fire. That's where it all started. About, it's where it all started. Uh, talk about the Enneagram. Oh my yeah. goodness, that would be too perfect for you too. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's how Tyler and I met. Showed up at winter camp. I plopped on like the adjacent couch next to Tyler, and I was like, "What's up?" And then I don't know how we even started talking about the Enneagram. I, but then I was just like, oh, so tell me how that's impacted your romance life. And then <laughs> we just launched into this wonderful conversation about Enneagram and dating and life. And I was like, I think this guy's going to be one of my best friends. And it turned out to be true. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Alrighty, so a lot has happened the last four years. We are currently in a very messy transition between presidents. And there was a lot of interesting discussion leading up to the 2020 presidential election. In particular, discussion amongst Christians about how to vote and uh, who to vote for. As Christ followers and evaluators of culture, we don't really want to move too quickly beyond the political events surrounding the 2020 presidential election at least not without reflecting on everything that happened, or at least some of the things that happened. So specifically, we're interested in an exchange between two Christian theologians and influencers leading up to the election. The exchange was between John Piper and Wayne Grudem about whether or not to cast one's vote for or against Trump as a Christian. So before we kind of get into the substance of their exchange, we should probably say a bit about who they are. So let's just start with John Piper. Maggie, I'm going to hand this one off to you because I feel like you have an affinity. I don't know if affinity is the right word, but you have some sort of special connection to John Piper because after all, your cat is named after John Piper. That is correct. Um, Yeah. So he's a a big part of my dissertation, actually. And one of the reasons why I'm writing about divorce and evangelicals is because of the John Piper paper, which is really fun to say, uh, that he wrote on divorce um, way back. Uh, So he's a very well-known theologian, pastor. He's authored a lot of really well-known books. Um, The biggest one, of course, is Desiring God, which is then spun out into his website. Um, He I think has been just a sort of icon for a lot amongst the reform tradition in evangelicalism. I had a friend once who um, was having trouble with his dating life and he, you know, bemoaned the fact that he thought all girls were just looking for the next John Piper, which to me is still the most hilarious complaint I've ever heard about dating, but uh, just like a big name and everyone uh, sort of looks up to him because of his Uh, very articulate and very intellectual um, approach to things. He wrote a book called Think Once, uh, which was really about how evangelicals need to kind of resist the anti-intellectual impulse within evangelical culture. So he stands, I think, against some of the um, more populist trends, perhaps, in American evangelicalism, which is interesting, uh, given his uh, post on Trump. Yeah. Was the name of the book Think or Think Once? Because those mean very different things. I'm pretty sure it was just Think. I don't know. It's been okay. forever since I've read it. All right. 
Yeah, and and of interest to me is this fact about John Piper. He was caught up in the open theism debates of the 90s, and he heavily criticized one of my favorite theologians, Greg Boyd. They have a really interesting exchange um, back in the 90s, late 80s, regarding open theism, divine sovereignty, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so he's just a really influential Christian thinker, pastor. Tyler, did you want to add anything to that? Aren't they both in Minnesota, Boyd and Piper? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine those exchanges going over uh, overly um, uh, well. Or maybe they'd be kind to each other, but I can't imagine that they they would agree on much coming out of there. Yeah, no. No, there was not a lot of agreement. I mean, there was like a debate about whether... Um, open theists could be part of like the evangelical theological society and so on. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, is. it was pretty intense. Wow. Yep. Great. So the next character to lay out here is Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a popular or prominent evangelical theologian and has done work in a variety of different areas within uh, systematic theology. He does work on Christian ethics. He does work on the gifts of the spirit. He wrote this like massive book on systematic theology um, that was popular for a time. So, yeah, just a really prominent voice within evangelical theology. And he's usually, um, for lack of a better word, coupled with John Piper, right? Like they're often together on things. They wrote together, right, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, right? That huge, massive book that's on my shelf and I haven't touched yet. Uh, So oftentimes when debates are going on, particularly about Calvinism, uh, you have Grudem and Piper on the same side of the debate. So that makes this, I think, even a little more interesting. Yeah, it's also interesting that Grudem is, okay, so he's reformed, and he's a Calvinist, but he's also like, he's a charismatic and there's nothing like, there's nothing ideologically or theologically that would make that inconsistent, but it just seems like as a matter of historical fact, that's not a very popular pairing, but Mm -hmm. he's a big proponent of the gifts of the spirit, the supernatural gifts of the spirit. Um, So I think that's really cool. So, okay. So these two had a really friendly exchange regarding voting ethics, and in particular, whether or not Christians ought to be voting for Trump. And, and just to be clear, both of them said in their essays, look, we're not telling you how to vote, but we're just going to tell you why we're voting the way we're going to vote. So this all started back in October of 2020. John Piper released an essay on his website, Desiring God, where he argued that Christians need to lend more attention, more concern to the impact of poor character on a nation poor character, not just poor policy, can really corrupt and distort a nation, according to John Piper. And so as a Christian, he argues that you need to you need to ask yourself whether your candidate's character has the potential to corrupt and shape a nation toward immorality, and whether supporting that, ca- that candidate will hurt your witness as a Christian. So he thinks that Trump, for a variety of reasons, manifests uh, um, various vices and poor character, and that this has a kind of warping, distorting effect on America and on the image of the church. Not too long after that, I think it was like five days later, Wayne Grudem wrote a response essay titled, A Response to My Friend, John Piper, about voting for Trump. I think it was even a, a friendly response to my friend, John Piper, something like that. It was, it was really cordial, right? Because as Maggie pointed out, they are buddies. And here's something that Pipe, that uh, Grudem writes. He says, Piper's argument fails to recognize that people can decide not to imitate the sins of a leader, 
but they cannot do that with laws. Laws require obedience. So Grudem's response to Piper is that, look, I, I grant that character matters when it comes to politics, but laws are the things that require adherence. You have to obey them. And so uh, Grudem goes on to say that, you know, both Biden and Trump are, are you know, morally deficient in important ways. And so what we really have to do is ask ourselves, which of which set of policies better align with the values that a lot of Christians endorse? So that's sort of a, a really brief overview of their exchange. And it caught a lot of attention within Christian circles. And so we just want to spend some time thinking about it and just reflecting on it, asking ourselves, like, what's good about this? What are we critical of? What did we learn from this exchange looking back? So, Tyler, I'm actually I'm going to hand it over to you and ask you to just kick this conversation off. What was your kind of initial reaction or what was what's a point that you want to, to talk about today? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I had so much that, you know, just came to my mind and different things that would come up. But I, I first want to just note that my initial reaction, um, even in hearing the article that we'd be talking about in the set of exchange was I had to sort of check myself a bit because to be honest, Grudem and Piper are not two theologians that I choose to want to engage with very often. Um, I think in past stages of my spiritual life and faith, I would have maybe said something different. Um, but at this point, I struggle with them a lot. I struggle with a lot of what they write, their perspectives, and and uh, different things that they go with, even if I do still consider them brothers in Christ. So um, I just want to say that I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to approach this with charity. Um, I've really had to check myself and and how do I how do I approach this charitably and not just uh, kind of snarky or anything like that. And so I'm trying to do that really well, but at the same time, still giving a truthful perspective from me. Um, that the, the charity doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to say what I feel is true about this. So I'm, that, that's yeah. just sort of how I'm engaging this uh, this topic. And, and I think in that spirit, one of the things that I find, I found very interesting to me, especially in light of evangelical typical things is that Grudem really emphasized, I, I couldn't agree more with him in a lot of ways, the uh, importance of systemic issues, of like laws, of, oh, sure. of, of creating those things. Like, and so often I don't find that that is often the evangelical perspective. I find it's more often like personal and character. So I find it interesting that in this case it was like, oh, laws are really important. We need to have laws that are, 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 are defined and, and that are brought together. I don't know if you, if you all felt that, but I think I come down in a way that I would say, well, my perspective on what policies and everything might be different mm -hmm. than what Grudem's is. But I do think that he, he raises an important point that those things matter and they matter a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Grudem's point is like, look, I can't, I can't get around laws. Like when laws are codified, they're enforceable, but they also shape a nation in a way that like I can't I can't resist in the way that I can resist someone's poor character, right? Mm -hmm. Like so Grudem goes on to say stuff like, you know, if Christians think that Trump has poor character, then they should just say so and they should resist it and they should choose not to manifest it. They should in their in their discipleship to Jesus um, manifest the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, but he says well, you can't really do that with laws. So. There, there, there is something, there is something to that. I absolutely 
absolutely agree. Well, yeah, he's he's debating over is it really cultural power or is it political power that matters when you're electing a president, right? And so Piper is engaging with a biblical argument based mostly on the Old Testament about how leaders are actually, in fact, the character of the nation. Um, and that's, I think, a hard metaphor for Grudem to accept because he's like, well, that's not quite uh, the way that America works. He doesn't say this explicitly, um, but that's the intent, right? That we actually have a system of laws that we are to rule under. It's not um, the kind of system that we have no say in, right? And we also can resist that kind of cultural uh, pull to have poor character and to follow Trump in kind of the path of um, whatever bad character Piper uh, claims he has. Although Grudem does push back on that as well, saying, and also on that point, I don't think his character is as bad as you say it is. Yeah, that was interesting. What did you all think about that? So let me just, let me just um, find that part of the essay. Yeah, that was one point I struggled to, to reconcile with what I've, experienced or seen Mm. to be honest i'm not sure how you know he he seems to trump seems to represent everything that evangelical um christianity in a personal way would go against right Mm -hmm. and his his sort of statement of well this stuff hasn't happened while he's been in president i'm not so sure about that well it's also important that like the quote where he says as i said four years ago it still stands, right? He hasn't changed his views of his um, character as a person at all since he went through a very similar debate back in 2016 yeah. over Trump. Yeah. So Grudem's like, so quoting himself from 2016, Grudem's like, he, he says, you know, Trump is egotistical, bombastic, brash. He often lacks nuance. He Sometimes he blurts out mistaken ideas that he later must abandon. He insults people. He can be vindictive when people attack him and so on. On the other, th- on the other hand, Grudem writes, I think some of the accusations hurled against him are unjustified. He talks about how Trump has had business success, um, showing that he's not a racist. Uh, he's not anti-Semitic. He's not misogynistic. He... Grudem says, I think these are unjust magnifications by a hostile press exaggerating some careless statements that he has made. And he goes on to kind of exonerate Trump's character a little bit, just saying like, look, he's raised really good children. He is steadfast of purpose in spite of an astoundingly hostile press and so on. I did did think this was interesting. When I started reading this essay, I thought Grudem was going to say, yeah, I grant you, Trump has really terrible character. There's, there's not much to salvage there, but nonetheless, policy, policy, policy. And um, he doesn't quite do that. He, he, he does try to exonerate Trump somewhat. Um, and like, look, I just, I don't know what to make of some of this. Like, um, look, it's tricky defining misogyny. There's like an interesting philosophical debate about what misogyny is. But just like, let's set that aside. Like, I think Trump has said some really um, harmful things about women. His way of engaging with women is often very destructive. So whether he's a misogynist or not, like he does some things that I think are harmful to people who have historically been aggrieved and who have historically not been represented well in political spheres. And, you know, whether that's a matter of character or a matter of ignorance, I I don't know, but it's harmful. And I, I just think that Grudem is a bit insensitive 
to that reality. So I, I don't know. Well, if... he's also backed himself into a corner a bit, though, on that. Ooh. Because back in 2016, he retracted his endorsement of Trump after that audio leak where he talked about mm. women. Oh. And then he reissued it once again. And so he clearly struggled over the misogyny thing, right? Where he's like, I really don't think there's any coming back from this. He didn't issue that kind of statement, but this is my read on the situation. And then reevaluated and decided, nope, it's it's worth it to swallow this pill regardless. And so now I think in 2020, he still needs to defend that. And the fact that the claim anyway, that, you know, the whole boys will be boys, that's in the past, that's not the way he's going to act as president, um, is somewhat true. I mean, as far as I know, in the last four years, there hasn't been that kind of uh, action. Um, but that doesn't completely eliminate the claims of past behavior. And the, I don't know, the, just just the, the whole perspective in general. You know, one of the things that he said, Grudem said that I, I found hard to to understand how he could say this specifically was um, at, in, in one of the paragraphs he shares, uh, let me find it right here. Um, you know, finally, I have not seen any increase in boastfulness or sexual immorality in the United States as a result of people imitating Donald Trump's behavior. I know of no one who has become more boastful because of President Trump and all of that. And I just, um, and such actions of all of this have been universally condemned by leaders in uh, in both political parties. I have a hard time believing that because when I look Agreed. around, you see issues of, especially within racial injustice, you see issues of Charlottesville, you see so much more boastfulness of, of racial um, pieces there that in fact uh, often feel like they threat, it threatens a lot of people of color who, who sort of are like more fearful about, can I really go out in the middle and go on a walk in my neighborhood because who knows what's going to happen in these this day and age when people are being more emboldened because they're seeing a president who can hold the highest office in the land, who can say all these things and gets away with it and is able to just be president. Mm -hmm. So I, I find that's a, a point that just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and I think that the data is going to back that up. I mean, there's already reports coming out that um, hate crimes as defined by, you know, criminal um, agencies are on a steep incline in the past few years. And that's not all Jeez. on Trump. I mean, that's definitely a toxic mix of both what the media has been doing and what's coming out of the White House. Um, but regardless, the attitude of um, the politicians, the GOP uh, has been one of, well, if you don't like it, too bad. And the response has been, let's escalate this rather than let's try and, and heal some of the problems that are in the United States. So I think that Grudem, in response to that, Tyler would probably say, oh, that's not on Trump, that's on mainstream media. Uh, but I think that historians looking back on this are going to very easily be able to trace the responsibility back to um, everyone involved coming out of Washington. And I think that Trump's attitude from the very beginning of his campaign, uh, which has really been a take no prisoners, um, like me or leave me kind of attitude has just been mimicked because it was successful. And I think that's a good point because it almost shares... I love what you said about it not necessarily re relying solely on Trump, but it's about the whole process that has allowed this to come to be. Because you know, my pastor, um, uh, Pastor Alex G, he shares a lot about how um, he views Trump more as a uh, a puppet. Mm. He's someone who who he's the one talking, but 
white American evangelicalism or white American um, perspective is actually the one using their hand because he's just saying everything that is underneath. Mm-hmm. He's saying everything that's been there. That's and and it's it's not a um, uh, he, he's he's actually fulfilling what um, a lot of America does believe and think and bring out. So in some ways, yeah, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would add to that, that it feels like Grudem has a really simplistic view of how political characters can influence a nation, can influence the character of a nation. So like, it feels like he like endorses what you could call like the transmission theory of character influence, like where my character vices and faults are transmitted to you. You like you you witness me. You witness my style of engaging with women, with minorities, with political issues, and then you start to like take it on. But that's clearly not the only way that you can influence negatively influence a nation. And I think it it connects with what both of you are saying. Rather than being an exemplar of bad character, you can be an enabler of bad character. And I I, I I'm not a sociologist, but my sense is that that's exactly what's happened. Is that under Trump's presidency, there's been a lot of enabling of what is already there. There's there, there, there already is Christian or like white nationalism, uh, white supremacy latent within America. And if you're not the kind of presidential candidate who cracks down on that and unequivocally denounces those things, there's a sense in which you create impetus for it. And if your own mannerisms and engaging with other with other ethnicities, with other nations is sort of cut from a similar cloth as people who are against those those people groups. It enables, it empowers. It's not like they're like learning these things from Trump. A lot of people have these vices and these faults. And I think the nature of um, the president's character in some ways enables and empowers those things. So, yeah, look, I mean, Piper kind of set up a sh- like a, an easy target to diffuse. Like, I don't, I don't think people like look at Trump and are all of a sudden like encouraged to be more vicious. But in some ways, political character can empower and enable things that are already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's just certain ways. Um, so I don't know a lot about this, but just look at like the pardons that Trump has recently um, given, right? Like that has reflected pretty poorly on our nation um, as far as the UN goes, as far as uh, the Middle East goes. And so if the, and I, again, I do not know if this is true or not, but if the accusations that this is actually um, a favor to, you know, a friend of a friend, uh, then of course, that's character absolutely reflecting um, the nation, personal character reflecting uh, the nation, because that is what the president is, a representative of the United States. And so I think that in that way, um, Piper is correct, that there is a, a, a position that the president holds. Um, so, for example, the very first debate in the U.S. Congress after the ratification of the Constitution, a lot of people think it's going to be over like the Bill of Rights and stuff like that. They were like, nah, we'll deal with that later. Maybe we'll never even get around to it. What they were really concerned about was what do we call the president? Do we call him his majesty? Because if we don't, he's not going to be taken seriously. And really, what role does the president have except as a representative of our country to foreign countries? And that was the major role of um, the, the white, well, at that point, it wasn't the White House, but the, um, the presidential branch, right? The executive branch was in those relationships with other countries. And of course, that changed over time. But that representation um, of our country through the leader that we, the people, have chosen matters. And I think that Piper is getting to something in his claim about that. And also just this larger debate over 
Christians being morally responsible as they choose who to vote for, not necessarily just doing it out of spite or doing it out of um, fear even, but really thinking to themselves, all right, what? how can I make a morally responsible choice in this election? And I think as I process to the assumption that there, the Christian vote on Grudem's part, I think, has to be this specific party's vote. Mm-hmm. Right. And the assumption that, I don't know, it just seems like either way, like you're either this way or you're not Christian, or on the other perspective, you either have to vote Democrat or you're not Christian, when in reality, the flaws that can kind of go into both. And, and again, it, it goes back to our two-party system. Um, to me, the idea that we have to choose between high character and effective policies, the fact that someone can get to a presidential election space and we have to worry about their character seriously concerns me. And obviously there's a there's a piece that we have to worry about there about how do we do this. But if we've got two people of high character, at least in that spot, this shouldn't, this isn't even an issue, mm-hmm. but when we've got an individual who has such flawed character. Um, I don't see how that doesn't fly into their, their policies and their procedures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there certainly is an argument to be made for, um, the poor character of other candidates as well. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of, I know a lot of Trump supporters are like, oh, well, it's not like his character is that much worse than the other candidate. And I think that comes back to your point, Tyler, is that we often um, are just kind of gritting our teeth and letting people um, continue up the chain of political power who just don't deserve the job, to be honest. And that, I mean, there's a lot of flaws to the American political system. Um, I'm very skeptical and jaded uh, when it comes to politics. I just think it's all bad. Uh, But there's a disappointment when we get to, as Thomas Kidd put it, he's a historian, a very well-known evangelical historian who just said, you know, for the 2016 election, neither the Democrats or the Republicans are actually offering us a morally responsible choice. Like he just kind of, and dropped the mic. He's like, sorry, neither one. And I'm out. And there's, I mean, there's the kind of pragmatic, but we have to choose somebody. Uh, But I think that the fault lies much earlier in the process when it, when you look at um, how, yeah, uh, how candidates were chosen. Um, And it's all, it's all just manipulation of, you know, oh, we'll get this group, we'll get this group, you know, we'll do that, we'll do this. And that's really tragic that it's become that. Can we talk about comparative character? So I'll just throw this out there. I mean, what do you guys think about this claim that um, this is implied by Grudem that Trump and Biden are roughly morally on par? I mean, it completely depends on how you're going to evaluate morals. So you dig into any politician, you're going to find problems, right? The fact that Biden flip-flopped. Right. I mean, he made a pretty hard uh, switch on the abortion issue in order to gain the presidency. So he lost a lot of uh, respect. Not that I support uh, that position, but just the fact that he had always, um, as a lifelong Catholic, said, you know, I do not personally support abortion. As a politician, you know, I'm going to 
uh, I can't remember his exact phrasing, but kind of like go with what the people want was sort of his justification. Like it's not the government's job to control this. I'm personally against it. Um, he definitely changed his tune in the lead up to the 2020 election in order to be able to gain uh, the candidacy. So I think he rightly gained a lot of criticism for that because he's kind of selling himself as a lifelong Christian leader um, through his Catholicism. And then he he did a pretty strong turn on that one key issue that would have, I think, helped that argument along. Um, there's other things, you know, you can dig into anyone, the whole, um, yeah, there's, there's stuff in with marriage and things, but that is still, you have to dig much deeper than Trump, like flagrantly, uh, you know, casting aside wives uh, and bragging about his escapades with women. And so, I mean, they're just not on par with each other. But again, is that really the debate we want to have? Like, which one is worse? I mean, it's just tragic. Right. Neither of them meet a like quality high bar. It does feel like there's a difference between two people who maybe have corrupt character, but one like knows better than to like manifest it mm-hmm. in overt ways, um, in ways that could actually be really harmful to people. Like I, I just have this sense that a lot of politicians are just very clever, and they like know how to subdue, they know mm-hmm. how to strategically modify and adapt in order to gain um, approval. And I mean, Biden, honestly, Biden strikes me as one of those people. He strikes me as, oh, yeah almost paradigmatic of someone who's willing to kind of play the audience in order to gain approval. I mean, and some of the crazy things he's lied about, like graduating at the top of his class, like what? Um, so I don't know. Look, he, he seems more like civil, right? There's a kind of outward ci- uh, mm-hmm. civility that I think is somewhat of a breath of fresh air, even if a lot of us are still suspicious that deep down he's, he's, he's pretty corrupt, but. Yeah, I don't know. I I agree with what you're saying. Like, I hate that we have to have that debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, do we reward the person who's just better at hiding it? Or do we reward the person who's honest about how terrible of a person they are? I I don't think either of those are morally responsible. So again, back to Dr. Kidd's point, we don't have a morally responsible choice. But here's my question. Is it reasonable for someone even to cast aside the moral responsibility question to say, look, I care about the Supreme Court and I really care about the abortion issue, because that's something that I think Piper gets at in a really weird way um, and is probably the part of his essay that just didn't make a lot of sense to me, because he makes the argument that even abortion, so in, in like really saying it's a problem to vote for Trump, right? That's what Piper is arguing, that it's a morally problematic to vote for Trump because of his character, that if you look at the abortion issue at its core, that's a character issue, right? That it is about pride. It's about, um, you know, taking your own life into your, uh, or the lives of others into your hands when it doesn't belong to you, right? Um, and on a theological level, sure, Um, But in a very practical level, abortion is about law. And so the Supreme Court decisions of Trump have had potentially um, a big impact on this issue, which is the key issue for American evangelicals. I think plenty of people are hiding behind that issue um, to to claim that's why they're voting for Trump when really there's other reasons. But I also think there are a lot of people who genuinely believe this to be the issue, right? 40 million you know, aborted babies this past year. And they're like, look, you just can't argue with that. 
like that's the issue that I'm going to vote on. And so is it reasonable for someone to, you know, bite the bullet and vote for Trump because of that? I, I don't think Piper gives a solid enough answer to that particular one issue. I Yeah, I I think that that topic is just such a, you're right, it has such a hold on people and, and people really do, their heart gets wrapped up in it and everything. Um, but I think the assumption, though, uh, is Grudem's assumption. This is one of the things that I just completely disagreed with that Grudem wrote when he wrote, the primary motive behind support for abortion rights is a desire for sexual freedom without responsibility of raising children. Mm-hmm. That's right. just, I, I, I cannot agree with that. Because I, I can't believe that you would sit with people who go through the abortion process. And sure, you'll find some. Of course. Um, but to go through and sit with people who go through the abortion process and think that, oh, you're here because you just wanted to have sex and you wanted to have no responsibility for it. How dare you? Uh, there's so much nuance. There's so much stories to that. And I guess my perspective as a Christian is is to be able to enter into that sort of stuff because even we know that even when that does legislatively become, remember, number one, Uh, that's not going to stop them from happening. It's just going to make them even possibly more dangerous. And number two, we are not providing options for people who are going to, who are considering that. We just don't. Yeah. Yeah. So there are definitely some rising stars, I think, in the evangelical world who are pointing out that there's been this false dichotomy um, between abortion versus other social issues. What is her name? She wrote Mother to Son. Jasmine Holmes. Jasmine Holmes. Um, Because she, as a a Black author in the evangelical world, arguing for more racial justice, has faced that question all the time, right? Like, how can you oppose conservative values when it means, you know, opposing potential change to abortion laws? And I think she has a really good approach to, but there's more to it, right? You have to look at, um, and what always gets thrown at, at Black authors, at least in Uh, my observation is that, you know, more black babies are being aborted than anyone else. So, you know, take care of your own issue. And her point is like, there's some very specific social reasons that that's happening and they're never being addressed. So you're Mm -hmm. always just dealing with the last consequence and never trying to help the actual root of the problem as Christian Mm -hmm. communities. And this has been um, an ongoing debate, you know, for decades that we've had this, like, let's, let's do more um, for the women before they have to face this terrible choice. Right. And so I think to your point, Tyler, that we have allowed this issue to get split um, so that they're, for someone who's really knows the research is a reasonable person and says, okay, I want to both address, you know, the core problem and the legal aspect. You have no political home if that is your position. And that's really sad. And I just feel like that, that statement or that idea of targeting black individuals and black communities and saying that you, you are the ones who should care about this because these are your children. Well, guess what? Um, if you've ever spent any time within and amongst predominantly black communities, you'll know that let's, let's deal with like the systemic racism. That's going to help deal with that. Uh, that's going to be one of the, the main ways that, that we're, we're actually dealing with different issues like that, because right now we're, we're, we're not in a space where that's happening. We're not in a space where we're prioritizing black bodies. We can't even say black lives matter. Why would we care about what, what, like, I don't understand how you think that black unborn babies matter more or, or matter 
in a different way than Black Lives Matter, if we can't say that. And I understand that there's some political or maybe some things that go along with it, but how, how, how is that, you know, equivalent or how, how does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think connecting this issue, the abortion issue with race is important. And, and I think it, it, for me, it creates concern with Grudem's type, type comments about how abortion is driven primarily by an interest in sexual freedom, which I don't think the studies support that. Um, oh, some but, of them do. I mean, come, yeah, yeah. come on now. Like, there's there's no doubt that the sexual revolution and Roe v. Wade and the pill and all of that, I mean, that's a thing that happened. Like, there's not, yeah. not that there weren't abortions before that. And there's plenty of stories of married women who had seven children and, you know, simply couldn't feed them and things like that. Um, but there is definitely a correlation. Um, it's just that's not perhaps the key primary issue so yeah i think that's say, what i'm trying to get yeah, at that yeah. it's not number one perhaps but we also can't cast it aside when for example we have um you know college students parading around saying i'm proud of my abortion because i'm proud of my sexuality uh yeah. you know they're embracing that argument as well yeah. on the other side of the aisle yeah. so that's fair that's fair and i i think what i'm trying to suggest is that when we throw out these like simple explanations or diagnostics like Grudem did were eliding other important research on why people get abortions, especially within poorer communities, right? Um, it's not to say that sexual liberation, sexual freedom isn't uh, an important factor. It's just not the only factor. And moreover, it's easy to read what Grudem says, uh, to take that and to, to subconsciously even allow that to stigmatize our, to, to create stigma against certain communities. Um, yeah. I mean, like, and there's just there's just stuff we have to know. Like I think we need to be careful what we say, and as as a way of protecting historically aggrieved groups. I mean, like um, you know, Kafalis and Eden, um, there are two sociologists, did really important work on poor motherhood in the United States, and a lot of some of the research found that um, while poor women tend to have maybe a greater number, there's a greater number in absolute terms of abortions coming from the poor. There's a lower proportion. Of, of poor women who have abortions as compared to uh, middle and upper class women. So I don't know. I'm just worried about stigma and I'm worried about vilifying certain groups. Um, so those sorts of reductionistic claims, I think, are concerning to me. Well, and I think he's engaging with Piper's argument, right? Like Piper boiled it down to pride. Um, and so he's kind of yeah. saying, well, I'm going to boil it down to something. He's making the same different. mistake Piper made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did not understand Piper's argument at all about pride being like this decisive reason for why people have abortions. I mean, it, it like, look, it's it's there, it's present, but I, I agree with what you said earlier. It seems like there's more going on. Well, and yeah. again, that's about the individual, and I think that goes to Grudem's point. Well, yes, but you're not voting to convert the nation. You're voting to come up with the laws to help govern the nation wisely. That's very different logic. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. In our next episode, we continue looking at these arguments. Stay tuned for more.